This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. On this particular morning, it was low IFR, I mean, two, three hundred feet. So it was a long ways to find, you know, weather that was suitable for IFR minimums. I got going first, so I got the lower altitude, and then the caravan, he climbed up. And I'm talking to the caravan on uh, 2275, and all at once, I just hear this sound, and the cabin turns dark. And uh, here you sit, IMC at night. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations where we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Doug Rosie Rosendahl. Rosie is a 10,000-hour general aviation pilot, and he's got all the ratings that you'd expect of a DPE, and a specialty DPE, meaning he gives check rides in many of the warbirds he's typed to fly in. He's former chairman of the board for the Commemorative Air Force, former chairman of their Standardization and Evaluation Committee, and he's been the chairman of the International Council of Air Shows Safety Committee. Doug's a former freight dog, and we're delighted to have him join us on the There I Was podcast. So, uh, Doug, for our listeners, you are one of the experts that I will call upon either before or after a podcast to seek some clarification and some insight on um, things. And you and I were talking, and you were sharing a story about an incident in a twin beach. And uh, both of us thought that'd be a really interesting uh, conversation for our listeners. So do you mind setting the story for us, uh, what happened in the twin beach? And But before you start that, I have a question for you. There's the king air, there's the queen air, there's the duchess and the baron. And why is it that the Beach 18 is known as the twin beach? How'd that come about? That's a good question. I guess I hadn't really pondered that. It's a DC-3 vintage airplane. Uh, I believe it flew either the year before, first flight was either the year before or the year after the Twin Beach 36-37 time frame. You know, it's very much a World War II technology airplane, but interestingly enough, if you've flown a Twin Beach much and you get in a 90 King Air, there's lots of commonality between those airplanes because... You know, the genesis of the 90 King Air was uh, putting turbine engines on a twin beach. But um, it's an iconic airplane, you know, like so many airplanes of that era, the DC-3 and the B-25 and all of those. They're just all iconic airplanes, and they were a major step, I mean, a huge step uh, in terms of technology from, you know, the Ford Trimotor 
You know, that was a 90-mile-an-hour corrugated tin airplane that barely had heat to a twin beach, which is, you know, you, if you've got a nice corporate twin beach, it's still a very, very capable business or personal airplane by any standard still today. As you mentioned, iconic, and one of those airplanes that just the pilots who flew them and the people who owned them just, just love them, and you can see it uh, in their eyes when they talk about it. My brother, uh, much like you, you were a freight dog in your early days and in the uh, Twin Beach. I think that's part of the story you're going to share with us. My brother did the same thing. He owned a Twin Beach and uh, and flew freight in that for a long time. And that's how he gained all of his hours to uh, to eventually work his way up to UPS. I think you were flying a, a night sortie in that Twin Beach. So pick it up for there, if you don't mind. Share the story with us. As you and I were talking about, one of the stories that uh, really highlights, I think, some key things about flying was a night when I had a total electrical failure uh, in low IMC conditions. And it really, you know, there's lots of uh, good lessons to be learned from that story. So I thought, you know, your listeners might enjoy uh, hearing about that. I started flying freight in 86. So we're going back along 35 years ago, and this would have been probably in the early 90s when this occurred, maybe late 80s, early 90s time frame. But we had, a, interestingly enough, a UPS run that went from Mason City down to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where we met up with a 757 or 727 initially, and then later a 757 uh, uh, UPS airplane took the boxes down to uh, Louisville, and then in the morning they'd come back and in the summertime, we slept in the back of the airplane. You know, in the winter, we'd uh, rent an apartment and we'd get down there about 10 o'clock, throw our boxes on a cart, and they'd go throw them on the 757 and uh, get up the next morning at 4.30, and the boxes arrive at 5 and throw them in the back of the airplane and fly home. This particular morning, um, it was cold. It was, you know, probably a springtime, as I recall. It was, it was fairly chilly. and So, um, you know, got my boxes fired up, took off. And you're flying single pilot, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. You're, it was always single pilot. And just to back up a little bit, you flying that kind of freight in a, in a twin beach like that, you pretty much did everything. You were your, your own maintenance, your own dispatch, your own freight loader, your own pilot, right? You were a one-man show. Is that right? Yes. you. Uh, it all fell on you. And, you know, the standards in 135 were different than, I mean, there's just no other way to say it. Uh, you know, a freighter was basically anything that the propellers went around and the flippers flipped. It was good to go. And so we flew some um, unloved airplanes. Our Twin Beach was a pretty decent airplane. It wasn't the worst freighter I ever flew by any stretch. You know, it lacked a little, you know, things got broke or fixed when they broke and never before. So, you know, it was, you. I have numerous engine failure stories. And, uh, yeah, again, it was just a different time. You really gained a lot of experience, and you, uh, in all of these experiences, you tested yourself and you found out how you're going to react personally in a tough situation, and that and that's really what happened this morning. But I fired up, taxied out, and took off, and we had a run again, as I said, that went from Mason City to Cedar or Cedar Rapids at night and back in the morning. So I'm on the return. And there was a FedEx caravan that had flew the same route at essentially the same time. And there were some other UPS airplanes that came in to meet that same uh, uh, jet freighter, and everybody left kind of in a big, you know, mass exodus. And then once we got airborne, everybody tuned up 2275, and we'd all, you know, chat about what was going on. And 
on this particular morning. It was low IFR, I mean, two, 300 feet from east of Chicago to central South Dakota. As I recall, my alternate was Mitchell, South Dakota, maybe even Pierre. So it was a long ways to find, you know, weather that was suitable for IFR minimums because it was just low IFR everywhere. And as I recall, Mason City was about 300 feet overcast. And uh, climbed up to 4,000, and, you know, I got going first, so I got the lower altitude, and then the caravan, he climbed up. And I'm talking to the caravan on uh, 2275 about who knows what, and all at once I just hear this sound, and the cabin turns dark, and it's before sunrise. It's still dark in the cockpit, and uh, here you sit, IMC at night. Well, I can tell you one thing about every good freighter pilot has a flashlight, And it's not in your flight bag. It's not in the glove box. It's between your legs. So you can grab it in a moment. You know exactly where it's at. You don't have to go looking for it. So I reached down, turned on my flashlight, and I'm sitting here in the middle of the clouds thinking, huh, this is interesting. What are we going to do? So I knew where I was at, and I remember trying to reset the generator circuit breakers, and they were the big buttons. They're about three quarters of an inch in diameter, the old style circuit breakers. And the joke was you carried a hammer or a Coke bottle underneath the seat to reset them with. Because they were on the floor, they would gather dirt in them and they they were really hard to reset. And so I unbuckled, tried to push them and they didn't reset. And I didn't know that they were popped. And I unbuckled my seat so I could get up and stomp on them. I didn't have a hammer or a Coke bottle, but I didn't have any success. And I thought, huh, well, I guess we're going to go home without any power. And this is before handheld GPSs. I mean, I've got nothing. I've got a heading and 300-foot ceilings, and it's dark. So this is, before, again, before cell phones, too. So there weren't very many towers in rural Iowa at that time, and we knew where all of them were. I mean, we flew this route very, very often and knew every landmark. And, and I knew that if I continued on my current heading for about another 30 minutes, I would be clear of the last tower between where I was and my destination. Mm -hmm. And by then, the sun would be starting to rise. And I thought, well, I'll just continue on this heading. And when I get, and I knew there was nobody below me because I was at the lowest altitude, and I'll just continue on this heading for 30 minutes, and uh, the sun will come up, and I'll start, just push the nose over and let down until I see the ground. I'll have daylight then, and I'll follow the roads and go home. Because I knew, I mean, this is home country. And I wasn't, quite frankly, very concerned about it. I had pretty much resolved that that's what I was going to do, and it wasn't going to be a big problem. Because you were over flat terrain that you knew well, you had no navigational guidance, and so you're going to start a gradual descent. You, You know the ceiling, or you thought it was, somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 feet or so. And you're going to start a gradual descent until you pick up the ground. And then from there, pick up your bearings and follow roads into your destination. That's that's about the only option you had at this point. Yeah, or continue for, you know, three hours, two and a half, three hours out to VFR conditions in South Dakota. And that wasn't very appealing to me. So, yeah, that was my plan. And I wasn't very concerned about it. And within the matter of, you know, I formulated this plan in, in a matter of moments. And not very many moments later, I look up and uh, I'm losing manifold pressure. Now, the Twin Beach has what's called a 10-1 conversion kit on it, which raised the, you know, the original Twin Beach, I don't know, it was maybe 6,700 pounds gross weight, something like that. 
And over time, the Twin Beach grew. And I think the last Twin Beach that left a factory had a 9,600-pound gross weight on a, you know, same power. And, uh, you know, when you went to 9,600 pounds, they extended the wings. They put a, about a three-foot extension on the wings to carry that additional weight. And then, you know, out in industry, somebody put a 10-1 STC on the airplane to take it to 10,100 pounds. And when they did that, they shortened up the wings again back to stock and put different wingtips on. But basically, there were the stock wing uh, span. And part of that modification was a ram air scoop that come off the bottom of the carburetor. And this ram air scoop was incredibly prone to carb ice. Mm. So I had, and the, and the carb heat in the Twin Beach was anemic at best. And so these airplanes had a carb alcohol pump that would spray isopropyl alcohol into the carburetor to clear out the ice. So I saw I had some carb heat or some carb ice and I put on the carb heat and the carb heat wasn't cutting the ice. And so now I've got a bigger problem. Mm. Now there are, there's humanity, there's towers, you know, just blindly letting down is not a very good idea. And I get pretty motivated to find some electricity so that I can run these little tiny DC motor pumps. And I knew they'd run on very low voltage because they're DC motor pumps. So I pulled all the circuit breakers of all the major systems. I mean, the things that have enough capacity to take out the whole electric, electrical system are the generators, the starters, the landing gear, and possibly the flat motor. So I pull all those big circuit breakers that I can, and I turn on one battery. It had two master switches left and right. I turn on one battery, and I go to those carb alcohol pumps, and that's all. I mean, that's the only thing I had on, and I try the carb alcohol pumps, and sure enough, there's enough voltage there to run the carb alcohol pumps. And so I think, well, if I've got enough electricity and I've got two batteries and I just use one of them, maybe I've got enough electricity to get a radio going. So I shut off all the radios except for one comm radio, and I turned on the uh, radio master. And as soon as and I'd switched frequently, I knew that I'd be on Cedar Rapids approach airspace. I was in Waterloo's uh, approach airspace, so I dialed up their frequency and turned on the radio. And sure enough the approach controller was speaking with one of the other freight pilots, the, the caravan that was right above me. And the caravan, I mean, he's saying, yeah, man, I was talking to him on 2275, and he was just gone, nothing. And uh, approach says, well, we see a primary target right there below you or behind you. And, I mean, obviously they wouldn't have known my altitude, but right behind you, and, you know, that's probably him. And so I keyed the mic to try to talk, and when I did that, there wasn't enough battery energy to transmit, and the radio just, you know, was garbled. And, and the caravan pilot says, I think he's trying to talk. And I mashed the mic button twice, and the caravan guy says, yeah, he's trying to talk to us. So uh, approach controller said, what do we want to do with him? And one of the other pilots that was on another route, he was going to Sioux City or Sioux Falls, I don't recall which, he said he wants a surveillance approach to runway 30 at Waterloo. And I went, click, click. <laughs> and the controller came back, and he says, uh, it's below surveillance uh, radar minimums here. And the freight pilot going to Sioux City says, he doesn't care. Give him the vectors. Click, click. To which the approach controller said, you know, Twin Beach, turn left uh, or turn right heading uh, 360 
vectors for the uh, surveillance approach to runway 30 at the Waterloo. Click, click, and I turned, and away I go. So now, I mean, now I, I don't have any problems at all, right, except I don't have much electricity. I certainly don't have enough electricity to run the gear, and I don't have enough electricity. The, the Twin Beach has electric propeller feathering. It's got an electric pump as opposed to, uh, you know, the traditional feathering in a light twin. It's called the hydromatic. And so I don't have prop feathering. So, you know, if I have a problem, it's a bigger problem. But anyway, um, things are looking up. So I take my north vector and I'm headed up there and I'm not very far away. He turns me on to the approach and a lot of talk about how it's below minimums and all this other, th you know, and I turned on my nav radio, but the nav radio couldn't resolve the localizer, right? I didn't have enough voltage to do that. All I could do was hear this one radio. And so uh, I fly in, and he tells me to begin my descent. I think, now, if I put the gear down and I have to do a missed approach, understanding that it is below minimums, and I pretty much decided I wasn't going below 200 feet. That was where I was going to give up. And then I was going to go back to plan A, which was just climb back up, continue on my heading, go to Mason City and let down there where there wasn't any humanity, nothing to run into. So I push the nose over and I hustle right down and I break out and here goes an ambulance up the freeway. And I think to myself, yep, that guy's going to, uh, to pick me up. <laughs> and as it turned out, sure enough, he was because they, you know, they, they declared an emergency mm -hmm. on my behalf and everything. And so now I break out, I'm down here, I'm on about a mile final, everything's grand. And like I said, I hadn't put the gear out because if I put it down, I couldn't get it back up again. And I didn't have prop feathering. I just wanted to keep the airplane clean as long as possible. Now, the Twin Beach has a very, very, very simple uh, emergency gear extension program. And there's a pedal on the floor that disconnects. It's an electric gear system with a motor and a, and a gearbox. And uh, you just kick this pedal and the wheels fall out. And then there's a crank. But basically, all you got to do is wiggle that crank, when, let off the, the uh, release clutch, and wiggle that crank to re-engage it, and you're down. It's an incredibly simple system, and it happens in about two seconds. You can emergency extend the gear almost instantaneously. So I kick the pedal, boom, the gear's down, life is grand. And I'm less than a mile final. I got the airport in sight. This is a great day. Mm. So I think to myself, man, wouldn't it be great just to see a green light, just to know? And I understand the systems on the Twin Beach really well. So I just, you know, again, reach down, kick the pedal, wiggle the handle, engage the deal. And I reach over and push in the gear circuit breaker so I can see a green light. You'll notice I made no mention of the emergency gear extension checklist because I didn't do it. And had I done it, the first thing on the emergency gear extension checklist is to select down. Well, I had not selected down because I didn't need it. It's got nothing to do with where the gear's at. But when I pushed that circuit breaker in with the handle in the up position, the gear tried to retract. Mm. And the gear partially retracts. That exhausts what little bit of battery energy I have left. Here I am, short final with the gear in transit. And I really didn't want to land on the belly. Hey listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. 
Now this crank, there's pedals on the floor and it's easy to get with your heel, but the crank is down on the floor and you have to put your head down mm. below the level of the windshield to actuate this crank. And when the gear's up and you kick the pedal, there's a lot of mass because the Twin Beach has got huge tires and it carries that out and carries it all the way to the down position. But when that gear is in the mid position and you kick the pedal, the wind is pushing the gear back and you've got to crank it forward and you don't have the energy of this falling mass to do it. And, uh, oh, by the way, this crank is mounted vertically and there are arrows on the floor and the arrows point one direction for up and you say to yourself, because now you're rattled. You're, yeah. you know, you're really second guessing. I'm an idiot. I've screwed up. What an idiot. And I look down at that arrow because one way I'm turning against air pressure and the other way I'm turning against gravity. And I look at the arrow and it says which way to turn, but do they mean at the bottom of the crank stroke or at the top? And I just stare at that for what seems like an eternity trying to figure it out. And then I, the same crank, if you pull it out, I think it's out for the flaps and in for the gear. I don't remember which, but the, the flaps have the same direction. So I have a bright idea. I'll test the flaps and see which way they go. Then I was able to, meanwhile, I'm flying two orbits around the control tower in the pattern at 200 feet in the middle of a, you know, fairly sizable metropolitan area, for, sizable for Iowa, of course, but a, a city below the clouds in relatively low visibility. When you were on that like half mile final and you pushed the circuit breaker in, the gear partially came up, you executed a go around at that point? Oh yeah, yeah, I just added power, absolutely. Yeah. And, yep. and now you make the decision that you're gonna, you, you don't wanna climb up in that weather again without electronics. So you're gonna stay below the ceiling that you broke out in, but that puts you at single-handed flying this twin beach with a 300 foot ceiling, right? With your head down on the yeah. floor. Yeah. Trying, trying to work yeah. this alternate landing gear problem. Right. Okay, all right. So I made two laps around the pattern. Um, got the gear back down, and I was I'm, this time, you know, now there wasn't any battery energy left. The green light was not an issue. And uh, I came in, landed, taxied up. You know, the fire trucks obviously are waiting. The ambulance is parked there waiting. You know, taxi the ramp, all good. You know, that's kind of the end of the story, except there's more to the story. So the first thing is, why did I lose electrical power? And so um, here's another lesson. To say, you know, when you're flying the same airplane, a very simple airplane, I mean, the beach is a very simple airplane, and it's, you know, I, I equate World War II airplanes to the first computer I bought in uh, 1984 had a spreadsheet program on it called CalcStar, and I had mastery-level understanding of CalcStar. I could execute all the functions that it was capable of. And I would argue that there's no human being today alive that can execute all the functions in Microsoft Excel. It is beyond the capability of one person to understand everything that Microsoft Excel can do. And so I equate airplanes, you know, World War II vintage airplanes, which I spend a lot of time flying, to a modern automated Airbus or something like that, to the difference between that first spreadsheet program that I had, CalcStar, to Microsoft Excel. And I had mastery-level knowledge of the Twin Beach, and I'm flying it every day. And to say that I was uh, judicious in my checklist, I or any other freight pilot of that era, quite frankly, was judicious in your checklist use would be incredibly generous. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just got in the airplane, and you wore it like a glove, and you, f 
kicked the tires, lit the fires, and away you went. And there were three buttons to start the Twin Beach. One energizes the starter. One energizes the primer solenoid. And the third one energizes the uh, ignition booster coil. It's got a shower spark kind of like it's got a, a primary induction vibrator that behaves kind of like shower sparks So because there's no impulse couplings. So you start one engine, and then there's a toggle switch, three positions left, right, and off. And then you select the other position to go to start the other engine. And the way the beach is wired, when you mash the starter button, you're providing ground, not power, but ground to the starter solenoid. Well, again, just like the circuit breaker on the floor that gets encrusted with dirt, you know, this was a 1957 airplane, and this was in 1990, so it's 40-some years old at that point. That button had been fully encrusted with dirt and grime, and it had shorted. So the starter was engaged, and the starter ran until it overheated. And when it overheated and melted, it took the it shorted the ground and took uh, and there's no there's no protection in the starter circuit, and it took out the entire electrical system. So it blew both generator circuit breakers, which I didn't have the capability to reset mm. uh, without a hammer, and ran the batteries totally dead. It just I mean it grounded them out with probably a number maybe an hot wire, maybe even a two-hot wire, a very large cable, and uh, and totally, you know, depleted both batteries. And so you were so used to cranking the Twin Beach and just releasing that switch, and you're, in hindsight, you're saying if you, a checklist usage, if you'd have looked at it, and it probably says verify starter off. No, all you have to do is put the start selector switch back to neutral. Oh, back to neutral. And it, it's not spring-loaded back to neutral? No, no, you have to, you, it's, it selects. So if I just selected neutral on the start selector switch, then there would have been a second break in that circuit. So you got one break at the push button to push the starter, and a second break in that circuit would have been the, the selector switch. Yeah. Now, the same scenario could have happened with a welded relay in the starter, but that's not what happened. What happened was the start selector switch was engaged, and so that kept the starter solenoid engaged, and that burned up the starter and shorted out the entire electrical system. Mm. And then, you know, on the gear extension, uh, you could argue that, you know, at 200 feet on a less than one-mile final is no time to be reading the emergency checklist to extend the gear, and that would have been correct, but I sure could have read it, you know, when I was five miles out. That did cross my mind, as you mentioned that earlier. I mean, single-handed flying a, a twin beach in IMC conditions down to a low ceiling, that's, that's pretty demanding. That's, there's, that's pretty task-saturating. You know, I've talked to a lot of people that, you know, like your brother who started out hauling freight in twin beaches and went on to lifelong careers in uh, aviation, and they will tell you hands down, the uh, most demanding job they ever had in, in aviation was flying at twin beach at night a single pilot IFR. You know, you've got carb heat, carb alcohol. If your hands aren't moving when you're IMC in that airplane, especially in the wintertime, you're missing something. You're on the go all the time. You know, in hindsight, the what I should have done was I should have read the checklist when I was, again, five miles out, and I could have put the gear in the down position then, and I would have had that step out of the way. And the circuit breaker was pulled, and then all I would have had to do was uh, kick the pedal and engage that latch, and I'd have been done. 
which is what I did. I just missed that first and most, or and not most, but first and important step of uh, selecting down. Now, the other side of this coin is let's imagine that I had not pushed that circuit breaker in, and I landed, and I cleared the runway, and I went in and parked on the first time. Mm-hmm. Now, the gear handle is in the up position, and I shut off the master switch, got out of the airplane, the UPS truck showed, hauled my freight away, and they put it on a truck and trucked it on, on up to Mason City. And the mechanic or someone else came down to, uh, or another pilot came down to retrieve the airplane in VFR conditions and was just going to you know, plug it into a power cart and fly it home. Maybe you know, that would have been something that we would have done in those days. So suppose that guy got in that airplane and turned the master switch on and at that time had pushed in the gear circuit breaker. The squat switch on the Twin Beach does not disconnect the battery motor, the, the gear motor. It engages a solenoid that locks the handle in the down position. Mm. So if the airplane would have been sitting on the ramp, yeah. and again, over time, if that battery would have recovered enough, a little more battery energy just from sitting there, you know how a dead battery, when you take the load off of it, will come back some and recover? Yeah. And if somebody would have got in that airplane, turned the master on and pushed in that circuit breaker, the airplane could have hit the ground. Mm-hmm. And if someone was standing under it, I mean, there would have been two engines, two propellers. I mean, it just, or somebody could have been seriously hurt. Yeah, I fly Navion quite a bit. We owned one in our family for a long time. And there's just too many stories of Navions coming off of jacks where they've done annual inspections or working on the gear or whatever. And somebody left the gear handle in the up position and the power comes on, hydraulic power comes on and gear folds up and there you go. New prop, new engine, tear down the whole thing. Plus belly skin damage and, you know, who knows what else. That's all correct. Yeah. So, you know, the the takeaway for me of this and the way I teach, you know, my students today is the emergency gear extension procedure is the same in every airplane you will ever fly in your entire career. And it's a two-step process, and it's real simple. Step one is fly the airplane. That means get away from the earth and get away from the crowd. So if you're close to the ground, which you typically are when you discover you have a gear problem, at best you're in the pattern, right? Which is, you know, 800 to 1,000 feet off the ground. But you may not notice it until you're on, maybe on base, that, you know, you didn't get what you wanted if you missed that first check. So get away from the earth. Climb, leave the pattern, get away from the crowd, leave the pattern, and go out to the practice area or somewhere well. And then read the checklist in its entirety before you do anything and think through it step by step, and then the next step is to execute the checklist. And that's the way, as a direct result of that, you know, when I ask that on, I'm an examiner, and if I ask that question on a commercial test, you know, what's the emergency gear extension, and people immediately start telling me the steps they're going to do, I, you know, I always say stop. I don't want you to memorize it. I want you to memorize two things. Fly the airplane, get away from the crowd, and away from the ground and read the checklist. And that's what we should teach to our students today rather than, you know, the rote level execution and rapid fire of uh, emergency gear extension because that's not the way. It's almost never something that has to be done in a hurry. 
So, Doug, those are some great lessons learned. I want to go back to your decision. You're at cruise altitude, which uh, – what altitude did you say you were cruising at when the when the incident happened? 4,000. Yeah, so you're at 4,000. 4,000, so 3,000 off the ground. Okay, and you're out over flat terrain that you know well. But you make a, an interesting decision there to uh, basically begin a blind descent to pick up the ground to find your way in. That seems like a challenging – scenario. Can you talk us through why that wasn't more of a concern as it seems like from this standpoint? Well, first of all, one of the primary factors in that was pre-cell phone towers. Uh, 30 years ago, I knew where essentially every tower in Iowa was that was 500 foot tall or greater. And, And that was just in my mental database. And secondly, I knew where every obstruction and every farmhouse and along that route because I'd literally flown it hundreds of times. You know, if I was a quarter of a mile off course or if I, you know, if uh, I was riding with another pilot on that route and they were a quarter of a mile off course, I had this uneasy feeling in my belly because I knew they weren't on course because you just knew it so well. You know, flying up there and letting down and following the road or, you know, following landmarks, uh, heading and landmarks to get home wasn't even a stretch. I mean, that wasn't, I didn't see that as being difficult or challenging. Really, at, at the time, that uh, that really didn't enter your mind as part of the stress of the situation. You were so confident in knowing where you were and the surrounding terrain and obstacles and that sort of thing. There was one tower that was about 800 feet tall. It was just south of a little town called Allison. And when I cleared that, I was home free. Now, how about the freight dog that was up airborne and just intuitively knew what you needed and made the calls for you to get the ASR approach and confirming that you didn't care what the minimums uh, said? Did, did you ever meet up with that guy? Did you ever figure out who it was? Oh, I knew him. He was, a. Yeah, I mean, we all hung out when we'd get to Cedar Rapids at night, all the freight hounds would hang out. You know, uh, at one point in time, we were, uh, we'd rented an office. There were two offices, abandoned offices up in an, in an abandoned terminal building, and we all had bunks up there. And for some period of time, uh, we all, you know, we all cry. It was a crash pad, basically. So, yeah, we, these were all people. We knew each other, and we knew everybody's capabilities, and uh, it was a team effort by far and away, absolutely a team effort. Well, an interesting and what sounds like a harrowing story, actually, night you're an IMC, flying a, a very demanding airplane to fly a single pilot with total electrical failure, and you make what just seems like a harrowing decision, which you've made relatively calmly to start this descent to where you'll pick up the roads, expecting you know where you are. And then somewhere in there, you're able to work through the systems, get a little bit of power back, get help from another freight dog, and, and end up coming in with a, uh, with a positive outcome. Some great lessons learned for all of us. And all because I skipped a checklist. Skipped a step in a checklist on a procedure which you had done hundreds, if not thousands of times. And it just goes to reinforce it only takes that one time for something to be just slightly amiss to ruin your whole day. And, yeah, and that's the whole point of checklist discipline is to trap errors. So one error doesn't become a major problem. And so, you know, it goes back to the extraordinary uh, skill to or extraordinary discipline or whatever to avoid situations requiring extraordinary skill. I was in a mess of my own making. And then I didn't do it once. I did it twice. And a thousand flights, putting that switch back to neutral never would have made a difference. But that day it did. 
Well, thanks for sharing that experience with us, Doug. Something that we can all learn from, and the big takeaway is the is the checklist discipline and the fact that yeah, ninety nine out of a hundred, if not more, times you don't need the checklist, but there will be that one time where you do need it, and that's why you do it every time. Anything else, Doug? You want to mention or call out before we close? Well, I just you know one of the reasons I think that we have enjoyed you know, the enviable safety record that we've had in uh, 121 Aviation for the last uh, 20 years is because of the experiences of guys like your brother who uh, grew up hauling boxes in Twin Beaches and Navajos, Aztecs, Barons, checks, you know, lab samples, uh, film. You remember there was a whole industry hauling film. This just seems crazy today, but... Uh, you know, so you could get your pictures the next day. They, you know, your film would jump in a barren or something. And those experiences, like I had, and and the many other stories that I had in the deep dark night in a, you know, in a marginal old airplane with marginal equipment and no GPS, is part of the. Re- and that experience base is what's kept our 121 aviation safe, as safe as it's been. And and we've lost that. I mean, kids today are not, you know lucky enough to have the experiences that your brother and I had doing these kinds of things. It makes me nervous a little bit because they haven't been tested in tired old airplanes in the deep dark night in bad weather. Yeah, he's got a a story that he shares with me about getting into some icing in the Twin Beach and it being everything he could do to keep it airborne on a ILS descent uh, coming into uh, Nashville. I think it was, may have been Memphis. Mine was in a Cessna 402, and I landed. I didn't land. I crashed on the runway at full power. The windshield was covered up, you know, halfway back on the side window. I mean, no forward visibility whatsoever. And, you know, and it's just that perseverance to never give up and keep the needle centered until you hit something hard. Hey, Doug, thanks. I, I so much enjoy the stories of you and my brother and uh, that kind of flying that, you know, it's very different. My brother and I, I was formally trained, right? I, I went right out of GA. I flew GA in college, went right into the Air Force and was trained from that standpoint. And then I would watch my brother who came up doing all of his training through GA, like you did, like Mark Baker did. And um, the remarkable airmanship that you guys learned and the experiences you went to are just amazing to me to hear these uh, stories, and they're great for us all to listen to, so I, I appreciate you sharing them. We were all better for the experiences that we had, and I just can't be thankful enough how many times that experience has served me well since then in both Warbirds and in my general aviation flying and in my own personal airplanes. I mean, you just you know what you're capable of, and you don't get rattled, and you keep flying the airplane until the last part stops moving. And most of the time, if you can do that, you're going to, it's going to be an okay day. So that would be the, you know, use the checklist, use the discipline, trap the errors. And when things do go against you, never give up, you know, just keep flying the airplane. One of the things that I teach is most pilots stop flying the airplane long before the airplane stops flying and never, ever let yourself get in that situation. Good advice from one of the most experienced uh, warbird pilots out there. Doug, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Well, that's an exciting story in an iconic airplane from Doug Rosie Rosendahl. And that Beach 18 is a handful, single pilot, IFR in IMC conditions, now total electrical failure at night, and then on top of that, a gear problem below a low ceiling. 
I liked how uh, Doug recapped it for us. I'm so thankful for people like Doug and that stature of pilot willing to come forward and tell us their stories and the mistakes they made so we can all learn from them. Such a powerful part of general aviation. And Doug, thank you for joining in the spirit of the There I Was podcast and why we do these things. And in his recap, the checklist, if he would used his checklist in both cases, that would have eliminated his problem. And 99 times out of 100, he doesn't need to reference that switch. But the one time that it failed, he needed to. And that's why you use the checklist every time, because you can't tell when you're going to have a failure that needs your attention. Then the gear problem that he mentioned that he kind of self-induced there. And sure, he wouldn't have had time to reference that checklist where he was, but his advice to reference it early so you at least go through the steps in your mind and know what it is is good advice for all of us. The other thing that really comes through to me powerfully in this story is his systems knowledge. If you could just hear in the background some of the things that he's thinking about in terms of the wear on his electrical system or the load that different items are going to place and his very conscious thinking about what to turn off when. And that's a powerful reminder to all of us that that in-depth systems knowledge that you build on your airplane, one day the time may come where you're going to have to rely on that and you won't have time to look it up and reference it. So for all of us to stay sharp in our systems is, uh, is a good idea. And then, you know, fly the airplane. When he broke out underneath that overcast and only had about 300 feet and he's working a gear problem, single pilot in a Beach 18, and the first thing he did was fly the airplane and make sure that he had flying airspeed and a clear flight path, then worked his problem to come back around and land successfully. So, uh, Doug, thanks for sharing your story with us, and thank you for joining us for another edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, Tyler Pangborn, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.